If you would, open your Bibles to the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 12. Let's pray. Fathers, we approach you this morning as we worship. Again, Father, we, we do so with hearts that are filled with thanksgiving. Because, Father, you are good to us. You are a good God, a loving God, a kind God. We know, Lord, that you are a fearful God. We know, Lord, that we, and we do have a, a very fearful and awesome uh, respect for who you are. We know, Lord, that we have been forgiven of our sins because of what Christ has done for us on the cross. We know, Lord, that you punished Christ for our sin, and as a result, we're able to come together here as your children to worship you and to honor you. We know, Lord, you've called us to live in a particular way because we are now your children, and you've given us your word that we may know, that we may understand you. Not only salvation, but what is expected of us, how we are to live, what life is about. To give us understanding and perspective of the past, that we may understand how to live in the present. But also, Father, you've given us information concerning the future. That, Father, we may not lose hope. So, Father, we ask that as we open your word this morning, the Lord, it would be a very profitable time for us. And so we ask, Lord, you would give us the help that we need to focus on your word, to believe your word. Again, we thank you, and we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. As we go through the message this morning, I don't want there to be any confusion, so do not look at the notes in your bulletin. Uh, <laughs> I didn't finish my message last week, and because of how we're going, I need to finish that so the notes that you see in the bulletin will have me of no help uh, to you. It might lead to great confusion. Uh, so I want to, to um, you know, and it's not Don's fault. That would be my fault uh, that um, those notes are there. So don't, don't look to blame her. Um, that would be me. So we're going to begin to speak today. You know, we, we, you know, we talked about the Tower of Babel last week. And as we kind of move on uh, through Genesis, we're going to begin to talk about Abraham today. A very important character. And again, what we're doing is is I want, to, I want to help you get a kind of a general historical and theological background or foundation as we move, because we're going to move into the book of Matthew. Now, don't begin, don't wonder when we're going to get to Matthew. We will. Uh, it will not be by next week. Uh, but I want us to have a good understanding of, of, of why really the importance of the gospel and really the importance of the life of Christ. Even though we know that, uh, you know, I, I think we want to kind of fill in the blanks. Uh, we want to make sure that we, we kind of color the whole page, uh, so to speak, so that we, that we have a, a good grasp of, of what's taking place and why. So even though Abraham never held an official position, he never held a military post, he never wrote any books, by any measure, Abraham is one of the most important human beings in all of history. We know that Jews and Christians and Muslims alike all trace their roots to him one way or another. Abraham is a central figure in the biblical storyline in both the Old and the New Testament. 
And so there's some things that we need to notice about him that will enable us to better understand God's dealings with man and the issues that have come out of the fall of man, which we covered in Genesis chapter 3. So in Genesis 12, beginning in verse 1, it says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Verse 7, Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. So now technically, this is not a covenant. God is going to cut a covenant with Abraham, and these things are going to be included. But this is kind of a historical precursor, if you will, uh, to what's going to develop in, throughout the book of Genesis and in the life of Abraham. This man was chosen by God, and some would say that he was not really a promising candidate. And I think that's a good thing for us to kind of notice as we work our way through the scripture and how God does things. It kind of reminds us of what we covered before, where it talks about God basically choosing the simple uh, over, the, over the wise. Um, those who, do, who don't have honor, God honors compared to those who may have the honor of men. God seems to do things kind of very uh, counterintuitive to what we believe would be the normal route to go kind of a thing. It kind of takes us to the life of Jesus. Jesus was born in the manger. He wasn't born in the king's palace. You know, he wasn't born with great political power and influence. It was the complete opposite of all of that. And that's the norm of how God works, it seems. One, uh, one commentator said this in observing the man Abraham. He says, Abraham, before this interaction with him and God, he said, what a pathetic sight is this guy. Trudging the dusty Mesopotamian roads, his journey has come to a dead end northeast of Canaan. How in the world could it be possible that one without such promise could hold so much promise. And so we want to, what we want to keep in mind as we work our way through this is when you look at the whole of the saga of Abraham, it really turns on the difficulty of trusting God's word. Where the, where the statements about Abraham is he was a man of faith. And that's what we brought up over and over again. We need to recognize how significant that is. And really on one sense, I guess you might say how difficult or unusual faith is. You know, we talk, you know, we're raised, if we've been raised in a Christian home or, you know, going to church, we're used to hearing the word faith and living by faith. And, you know, both believers and non-believers talk about faith. And it's kind of a, you know, a casual thing that we hear a great deal about. And so I want us to kind of put that aside and really begin to think about what is faith? What is the substance of faith? You know, there's these things that we believe. What is that based on? Uh, and I trust that it will be helpful as we do that. So Abram, Abram here is told to leave his home city of Ur. God does make a promise. He makes a promise of land. He makes a promise. He'd make him a great nation, that he would make his name great. Uh, I, I think you can't help but notice the contrast between what God says to Abram and what we just read earlier in Genesis when it came to the Tower of Babel. In chapter 11 of Genesis, verse 4, then they said, this is, this is mankind, come let us build ourselves a city and a tower with this top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. So in opposition to this ambitious humanism of the builders of Babel, God says to Abram, I'll make your name great. 
And so there's this huge contrast with this, this great project that these individuals took on, this, which is going to be a great and incredible accomplishment uh, that they were going to and make their name great. And here's this guy who's out there wandering around. He's a nomad. And God says, yeah, I'm going to make you great. I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to make this happen. Another interesting point is that God's commitment to this man, Abram, is so fixed that the reaction of others to Abram determines God's reaction to them. I mean, imagine that. I mean, who, before all this, who is, who is Abram? Who is this guy? There's, there's nothing in here about some great talent. You know, he wasn't leading, again, he wasn't leading a great army. You know, there's no talk, there's no talk about his incredible intellect. There's no unbelievable invention. I mean, it's not like Abraham, you know, developed, you know, developed the wheel. I mean, he's just this guy out there. And he doesn't have any kids. He's got no kids. He's old. He's got an old wife. You know, they're getting toward the end of life. And God says, you know, by the way, uh, the way people uh, treat you, I'm, I'm going I'm to deal with them. Verse 3, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So God has made some promises to Abram. So we move on to chapter 15, and God is now going to take it up another notch by making or cutting a covenant with Abram. And again, this will help give us some context to Matthew. So this, this cutting of a covenant, one of the things that's interesting is when you look at the covenants in the Bible, you know, there, if you, and you only study those things and, and draw your understanding of a covenant from that, one of the main features of a covenant is an oath. The oath that is taken. And what is in that oath? And here, God makes an oath. You know, he he is laying it all out there. Everything that's going to be accomplished is going to be done by God. And God is putting his entire reputation, his integrity, who he is on the line, so to speak. It's not not a a gamble for God because God is all-powerful. God is all-knowing. It's not like God saying, boy, I hope I can follow through on this. There's no doubt that he is because he's God. It's not like how you know, we take, take an oath. They'd be very different. So, but this is, this is the one who is speaking, and this is what God is going to do. And so in chapter 15, beginning in verse 1, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O oh Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliab. Elizer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring. A member of my household will be my heir. So, you know, Abraham's got no kids of his own, and one of his servants has a child, and, and this, because it's considered part of his household, this person is, is now going to be considered the heir. So you can tell that ever since God promised that he was going to be given this land, his descendants would be given this land, and all this, he's been thinking a lot about this whole child thing. And so he says, This is, this is the deal. This is what, this is what I, I'm seeing. And it says, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said, this man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. He brought him outside and said, look toward the heaven and number the stars. If you are able to number them, then he said to him, you, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from the land of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. 
So notice that from the get-go again, as I mentioned, Abram has been brooding on this promise that God made about the land and being given to his descendants. Again, he and his wife have no children. They're old. Abram has no idea that many more years are going to pass before God would, in a sense, finally come through. God would come through at a time when all hope seemed lost. In fact, God was going to show that he was as good as his word. And that should remind us of something really very simple. And that remind us that God will perform exactly what he has said he will do. If you think about Abraham for just a moment, God tells him these things. As Abraham is thinking about what God has said from his point of reference, what does he have to go by to substantiate his faith? He's old. I mean, he's, he's really old. And he's thinking, okay, God has reiterated, no, the heir is going to be your son. So now we all hear of miraculous births. If there was a lady in our church who was 50, who became pregnant, we would go, ooh. You know, we would like, you know, we, we, we would be talking about that. And, but, you know, we would, we, well, you know, it's not all that unusual in a sense. I mean, there's been other 50-year-old women who've had babies. It's not like there's a line of them, but we know we've heard of that. And, but what if a lady in our church was 60 and got pregnant? Oh, wow. Um, now, I have read a few stories about a 60-year-old woman having a child. Yeah, that is rare. Uh, we would all be astounded by that. What if a 70-year-old woman became pregnant? Well, are you sure she's 70? I mean, I mean we, would, we would not know what to think. We would be surprised. We would say, are you happy? I mean, it's just like, you know, uh, are, you, are you seeing a doctor? Um, you know, he's like, well, prayer list, number one name, <laughs> this individual. What if she was 80? I'm about you, but I'm using the word miracle. I, I'm sure that it's happened by what we call the normal processes, but this is all, this is a miracle. 80 years old? So Abraham's point of reference, if he's thinking, I mean, I don't know who all he knows and, and what all has transpired in the world around him as far as all the details, but I'm pretty sure he's not very uh, acquainted with a lot of 80-year-old women having babies. It doesn't happen. So from his point of view, he believes what God said. I think that's astounding. He believed him. Remember, God takes him outside and shows him the stars. Hey, you can count the stars. That's how many descendants you're going to have. I'm like, come on. I mean, you know, let's get real. I mean, there's a lot of stars up there. I don't even have one yet. I mean, that's just that's incredible. Does it make my name great? How is that happening? In fact, remember God begins saying, I'm your shield. I'm gonna... To me, the importance of that, I guess, in a sense, is, is uh, you know, I mean, he's hearing of other things developing in the land around him. Great countries are rising, and a lot of that has to do with military and power and all that. You know, a little nomad, you're kind of at the mercy if somebody comes along, a group of bandits comes along, and they have a little army. And there's not a whole lot you can do. He says, don't worry about it. I'm your shield. I mean, that's, that's incredible what God is telling him. His, his faith is, is truly astounding. It is, in every sense, childlike. We sometimes can think this. We need to be careful. Having the faith of a child, or being like a child to believe, does not mean immature. 
Because we can think that. Like, oh, I have to be, I have to be like a, a baby, non-thinking. I don't think Abraham's a non-thinking person. He's thinking about all this. And he, he's believing what God has said. So we don't have to be embarrassed because we believe certain things because of what the Bible says. You do know that's the main source of our belief, right? How do you know that you're going to heaven? How do you know that? Well, because the Bible says. How do you know that God loves you? I mean, how do you really know that? Well, I mean, the, the Bible says. When someone becomes a believer in Christ, I will ask them often, how do you know? How do you know you're saved? And some people say, oh, well, you know, I, when I prayed, man, I, I, mean, I, I felt different. That's good. How do you know you're saved? Because one day you may not feel different. Why? Well, I felt like this burden just lifted. I'm very happy for you. But one day you may feel a burden. How do you know? How do you know? Why? Well, I feel like I'm just starting all over again. Good for you. You are. How do you know? Because feelings come and go. All right? So how do you know? Well, and I've even had people say, well, you said, whoa. I said a lot of things. Uh, you, it's not, you know, now, it is what I'm saying because in the sense I'm repeating what the Bible says, but it's not what I say. So how do you know? Well, because God said. And how do you know God said that? Well, it's the Bible. It, that's really what it's based on. Now, we know that our, that, that our faith has substance to it. All right? At the same time, though, you know, we don't list a bunch of facts. It's, well, that's what the Bible says. And I, all, all my marbles are in one basket. The world may think that's foolish. We know that what they think is foolish. So there's substance to our faith. Our faith is not blind. But this idea that the word of God is sure is a very important concept. Simple, profound, and in one sense, really risky, unless it's true and real. And of course, God has proven himself over and over and over again throughout the Bible and even in life's experiences. We know the word of God is true, but that is what it's based on. So it's not immature. It can at sometimes, maybe to others, sound weak. It's not weak. It's the most solid, sure foundation there is. Besides, remember, you go, very first lesson, or one of the first lessons you learn when you read the book of Genesis, chapter 1, God said, let there be light. And there was light. His word is powerful, true and powerful. And so here's this man Abraham, and he's, he believes. And God accounts that to him as, as righteousness. So it's not because he was moral, it's not because he was ethical, not because of any of those things. He took God at his word. That's really what it is. He takes God at his word. What we know again is that Abraham did, not, did believe what God had said to him, not only about an heir, but also about his descendants. Faith in, God, faith in God's promise is faith in his character. God's character can only be trusted if his words can be trusted. Abram's faith in the promise glorified God, and God's response was to justify Abram as righteous before him. Again, you may begin to wonder, so, okay, so what was Abram trusting in? He didn't have the gospel. I believe that the context is clear, that the content of the declaration by God Concerning the stars of the heaven and the sand on the seashores evoke trust in Abram. And that God reckoned that trust as righteousness to Abraham's account. 
Abram was not presented with a message about a crucifixion and a risen Messiah. He wouldn't even have known what a crucifixion was in that case. He was believing what God said. The object of faith is always the same. It's God and his word. And then the specifics of that, con of, of that content would change as the Bible looks forward to and prophesies, predicts the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, and we begin to see how everything culminates on that. But these people in the Old Testament are believing God. In the same way that you and I, who are obviously are living beyond the crucifixion, we didn't see it. How do we believe in that? We are believing what God has said about that. And I'm taking God at his word. When Paul uses Genesis 15 in his argument for justification, he repeats the content of this message as he observes the response of God to Abram's faith. So turn, if you would, to Romans 4. Romans 4, and we'll look at two sections of Romans 4 and seeing how Paul deals with this. Romans 4, and I'll begin reading in verse 3. Paul writes, For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but trusts in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So I believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. I am counted by God as righteous. Uh, it's not because I'm doing or living in righteousness. This is declaration by God. It, it, is, it is his view of me because I am trusting in what he says and believing in what he says. Jump down to verse 16. That is why it depends on faith, which again is trust, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring. So we see faith here being described. So that God makes this promise. He makes a promise to me concerning salvation. He makes a promise to Abraham concerning his descendants. And so Abraham believes that. So that is the grace of God, the goodness of God. It's the gift that God gives to him. Abraham is not earning this, and we are not earning salvation. And it's guaranteed to all of his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist, in hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. So we're told what it is that Abraham is believing. Humanly speaking, it's not wishful thinking because that there's nothing, there's no reason to believe this. But he is hoping in God himself. Because God, what? God is able to call into existence things that don't exist. That, that's, that's the basis of creation. When we go back to Genesis 1. So verse 18 again, In hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told. So shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body. So you see, he was thinking about his age. I wasn't making that up. He looked at himself I don't think he had a mirror, but he knew what he was, and he saw how weak his own body was in the sense of being able to produce an heir. And he says, and then he, this is how he describes his body, which was as good as dead. Wow. Not a whole lot of positive thinking going on there. Since he was about, what, a hundred years old. 
or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. So you see, he's considering his age and her age. And the fact that it's not just that she's old. Okay, they have a normal marriage. They had normal physical relationships their entire married life. She never got pregnant. Never. So it's not only that she's old. She, for whatever the reason, she's barren. She is, we would say, unable to have children. Verse 20, no distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Now, that was going to be tested. Remember that as Abraham was going through all of this and believing what God had said, she didn't get pregnant next year or the year after or the year after that or the year after that. There's some time going by. It's almost, as we look in hindsight, God is making sure that everyone knows that this is of God, that this is not humanly possible, that unless God intervenes, this is not happening. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. So the focus for Paul is on faith in God, not on what Abraham believed. He mentions what Abraham believed, which is this promise that God has given to him. Turn to Genesis chapter 16, beginning of verse 1. It says, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarah said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. Now, to understand this, this was a common practice in those days among many of those in the surrounding cultures that if your wife was barren, you would take her handmaid and she would have a child for this woman, right? So that's how they were thinking. They still should not have done that, but that's what they did. That was the normal way to do this. And so perhaps she's thinking this is how the Lord's really, this is what God really meant. This is what God meant. And so it says, Abraham listened to the voice of Sarai. I'm assuming he knew about what Adam did. And we covered that. Adam listened to the voice of Eve. Now, what that meant, again, there's nothing, we're not trying to downgrade women. All right? So I'm not telling you not to listen to your wife. All right? However, he listened to Sarai instead of the Lord. It's like Adam listened to his wife Eve instead of God. That's where the problem comes in. All right, so listen to your wife, except when your wife goes against what the scripture says. Then, then you can ignore what she says. Only then. It would be unwise to do so at other times. All right, so he says, and Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, gave her to Abram for her husband as a wife. He went into Hagar, and she conceived, and when she saw that she had conceived, he looked with contempt, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, may the wrong done, may the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked down, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. So basically, we can imagine what took place. She had, Sarah has this idea. She, they're going to follow what the culture does. Abram agrees. This Egyptian handmaid has a baby. The moment she becomes pregnant, Sarah is just, she's angry. She is angry. She's jealous. I mean, you know, 
And of course, she's going to want to blame Abram. They're both to blame here. But you know how it goes when we disagree in our, in our, in our marriages and the arguments. You know, it's, it's you know, look what you did. This is what you did. Well, okay, I did some wrong things. 5%, 95% is on you. I mean, it's just, that's what's happening. And so, and, of course, and so now she's also imagining things. I don't know how, this, how Hagar looked at her. But, you know, she's looking at Hagar saying, yeah, now she probably thinks she's better than I am. Or like, like she's now the queen of this, of this whole family. Because it's a big, big group of people. I don't know if that was going on or not, but that's what she's thinking is happening. And so she's like, I make God judge between you and me. Verse 6, but Abram said to Sarah, behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. So Abraham here, sometimes he's, he's kind of a, a wimp. He's not going to make a decision. He says, look, she's your servant. You do what seems best. He wants no part of this. So Sarah dealt harshly with her as she fled. So again, the main point here is not that Abram listened to a woman, because she's a woman, but again, he listened to her and said it to the Lord. The same way that Adam listened to his wife in contradiction to the word of God. This pragmatic solution that Sarah came up with, was, uh, that, that Sarah devised, is still being felt today. We, we, most of us are aware that the great conflicts that take place in the Middle East can be traced back to this. I mean, as to the consequences sometimes of sin is unbelievable. That's why we need to remember that there's a lesson there. And the lesson is, is that sin is not only more powerful than we ever imagined, but its consequences cannot be controlled. It cannot be controlled. And, and often, and, yeah, I think it's often, it's not always, when you and I choose to do certain sins, it's not that, we have, not that we've actually you know, thought the whole thing out, but there's this idea present that we can handle whatever comes our way. I, I can handle the situation, I can control things, et cetera, et cetera. And of course, that is normally untrue. And, and it's, it's, it's visible in the Bible from the very beginning. And so here, these people are doing it. They're human beings like us, and they're doing the same thing. And this is what's happened. And so this pragmatic solution that she came up with, it, it's, it's the, the, the conflicts and the bloodshed that have taken place over thousands of years can be traced back to this. Again, it should remind us that placing our reasoning above the clear statements of God is always dangerous. That's why we want, that's, remember what, what does Proverbs say? What's the beginning of knowledge? Fear of God. What's the beginning of wisdom? The fear of God. The knowledge of God is how we begin. We take that into consideration. So it's not that you abandon reason. No, I need to reason. We reason from Scripture, from the truth of the Word of God. That's how we do that. And so this is not the idea that we're going to become non-thinking beings. All right? This is not that, that Abraham should have not been thinking. He was thinking the whole time. But he needed to base his reasoning on what God had said and then lived in obedience. Turn over to verse, uh, chapter 18 of Genesis, beginning of verse 1. The Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. And he lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, three men were standing in front of him. This is Abram, uh, by the way. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth. and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves and after that you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So they said, do as you have said. Verse 9, they said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? He said, she is in the tent. So the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him and now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years, the way of women had ceased 
to be with Sarah, so that means she was no longer having a period, in case you were unaware of that. Verse 12, so Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out, and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? And the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child, now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah will have a son. But Sarah denied it and said, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, No, but you did laugh. So we know what happened, if you read through Genesis, right after this, you know, the Lord basically is he's hearing the cries of what's going on in Sodom and Gomorrah, and he basically, you know, we know the story, he wipes them out uh, for their sin. Jump to Genesis 21, the story moves on. We now have come to that time when the Lord visited Sarah, verse 1 of chapter 21. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised, and Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age, at the time which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. So Ishmael is the name of the other boy that was born to the Egyptian handmaid. And the tragedy of Ishmael, again, is that Abraham and Sarah did not take God at his word. That's what took place. God had told them what he was going to do. They didn't take him at his word. Instead, they, they intended to help the situation along by reinterpreting the covenant that he made. However, the message of Genesis continues to be this. Take God's word at face value. That's what you do. Take it at this. It's simple. That's one of the great things about the Bible. Though it is incredibly complex and requires a great deal of study, we, can, we take it at face value. God said we are sinners. We are separated from him. We are already condemned. We are on our way to hell. That We can never do enough good works to get to heaven. That's just final. God is just. He is perfect. He's going to judge sin. There's a coming judgment. There is no way you can escape. You're already condemned. Oh, by the way, God is good and gracious and kind and loving. So he's going to fix this situation. And he sent his son into the world. And he lived the perfect life. And he then voluntarily laid his life down, paying for the penalty of our sin. And... He was buried because he died and was raised again. Is anything too hard for God? No. I take God at his word. I believe that. Every word of that, I believe that. I have my faith and trust in that. Your nine-year-old can believe that. And if you're 90, you can believe that. It is not, again, what someone who's just an adolescent form of, you know, the kind of a young, immature thinking that is not what that is, that is taking God at his word. Period. That's faith. That's what Abraham is demonstrating here when it comes to this whole scenario and all this, this mess that he and Sarah have created. But in the end, what has taken place? God can be taken at face value and delivered exactly what he said he was going to deliver. There was no need to reinterpret his words or any of those things. Just take what he says and go with it. It's all on God. And that's it. No excuses. Don't need anything. Nothing. Nothing at all. When someone is old and they're on their deathbed, and that person's been going to church for a long time, sometimes strong believers, they can begin to have these doubts. They're not normally doubting God. They're normally doubting themselves. Because you become more aware of your life. My life's almost over. I know I've not lived perfect. I know I don't deserve heaven. And some anxiety can kind of build up there. What you don't do is say, oh, no, no, you were a good person. I mean, you were the church most of the time. I know you helped the poor. No, that's not what we do. So, well, 
we look at Jesus. We go through the gospel. And you know the amazing thing, in case you've never had to do this with anybody, reviewing the gospel with that individual from scripture brings comfort to them. Their faith is renewed because it's about Christ. You don't trust yourself. Trust yourself, you're not going to make it to heaven. I'm trusting God. He's the only one that can get me there. And if God has lied, all is lost. There's no hope. And there was never a future anyway. Ah, but that's not true. Well, we have to stop there. So I still didn't get done. But that's okay. Because we're, going our, we're working through the Bible, and it's not a race. We want to make sure we understand this. But I want you to, but, I, but you know, the idea, you know, when it comes to faith, the faith that we exercise in Christ, we want our faith to go stronger. Our faith in God grows stronger, not by the good works that you do. Right? That's evidence that I have faith in God. My faith in God grows stronger as I believe and read and study what? The Bible. I need more of God's word. And as I read the word of God, that's encouraging to me. It strengthens my heart and my mind. That's why our focus is always on the word of God. When we read our prayer, when we go, when we have our prayer of confession, what do we read after that? There's usually a passage that's read that reemphasizes what? Happy is the man whose sins are forgiven. That God is faithful to forgive us of our sins and our trespasses. That Christ has died for our sin. That's why we do that. We're not confessing our sin, hoping and wishing God to forgive us so we can at least walk out of here knowing we're going to go to heaven. No, we're doing that because we know we are and we are reminding ourselves that even though we still sin, this is the promise of God. We read through the scripture on Sunday morning. We just read it. You know why? Well, because God tells us to do that. And we need to hear the word of God. When we preach, when I preach, when Tom preaches, whoever preaches, what do we do? Open your Bibles too. We are declaring what God has said. We want to explain what God has said. By that, our faith grows strong. We are encouraged. We are warned. We are admonished. And it's good for us. It's, that's the food for the soul. And so, as we look at that, faith is not complicated. Not at all. There is evidence of faith. Evidence for our faith. But I'm taking God at what he says. And there's no contradiction to reality in taking God at what he says. And God has proven himself, and we can see it here, and we'll see it again and again. But we'll also recognize how man is living and what man is doing as we move forward and we get into the gospel of the book of Matthew. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord, for this man, which we now consider, Father, to be a great man. But, Father, we know that Abraham was a great man because he had faith in you. There were no other accomplishments in his life. He had faith in you. And, Father, his faith was so outstanding even though he was such an imperfect man in so many ways, he is used as an inspiration and an illustration for us today to trust you. Father, for each one here this morning who has trusted Christ as Savior, I pray, Lord, and ask that each one will be encouraged in their heart, will be strengthened by this reminder of your faithfulness and that you can be trusted. Father, for those who do not know Christ, they've not yet committed themselves to Christ. They have not come to you for forgiveness of sin. I pray, Lord, that you will convict them of their need of Christ. I pray, Lord, also they will recognize that they will, that, that they are, will never be in a position to earn your favor. 
but earn salvation. That, that it's clear that no one can do that. And even a man that we consider to be as great as Abraham was not depending on any good works that he did. No accomplishments in his life because he had none. He had none. His notoriety was because he had a kid when he was super old. That was about it. So, Father, I pray we'd be encouraged by that. And for those who don't know Christ, I pray, Lord, they would seriously consider the good news of Jesus Christ. We pray that in your patience and kindness, you'll draw them to themselves. You'll draw them to you, that you will help them to see within themselves the sin that separates them from you, and they will believe in Christ. We thank you, Father, that the message is both profound and simple. And we thank you, Father, again, for ensuring that for those of us who believe that we heard the message and that you opened our eyes and gave to us the gift of faith, that we might believe in Christ. We will never be able to thank you enough, Father. We ask now, Lord, that as we bring our time here to a close, that, Father, you will continue to bless the teaching and the reading of your word. And we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.